الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى والصلاه والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحج اشهر معلومات وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم الحج المبرور ليس له جزاء الا الجنه او كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم most respected mothers and sisters in islam allah tbaraka wa taala blessed us with the greatest bounty and gift and that is the gift of iman allah tala keep us with iman take us with iman raise us on the day of qiyamah with iman together with that is that bounty and gift which we can never be grateful enough for and that is that we are in the ummah of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam everything about rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is extremely great and everything has tremendous guidance in it for us everything about him was a perfect and splendid example as allah taala in the quran sharif explains that laqad kana lakum fi rasulillahi uswatun hasana that in the rasul of allah tbarak wa taala for you is a most beautiful and excellent example to discuss anything about the mubarak life of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is filled with barakat and blessings to learn about any aspect of his mubarak life will fill the heart with noor so what can be said about the discussion of that ibadat of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam which becomes farz on a person once in a lifetime only that is the hajj of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so allah's nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam performed hajj after it became farz he performed hajj once in his life and this too was right at the tail end of his life in dunya and this is what we will inshallah discuss today briefly obviously but there are many points that we should be paying attention to and taking a lesson from but in general the mubarak hajj which rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam performed and which is known as hajjatul wada and the sequence of events that took place we will inshallah briefly discuss this and take some lessons as we go along it was in the 10th year of hijra so 9 years had passed in madina munawwara and in the last year of the mubarak life of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam barely approximately 3 months before he left this dunya nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam performed the hajjatul wada as it's known the hajjatul wada meaning the farewell pilgrimage and the sahaba say that we had also been using this term hajjatul wada but it never struck us what it meant until when nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam suddenly left this dunya and we realized that this was a time when he said farewell to the ummah when nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam had made the announcement that he would be performing hajj this news spread like wildfire and many many thousands of sahaba got ready many left from madina munawwara together with rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam many joined up on the way and there were others who came and joined him while he was in makkah mukarramah 
And in total, there were more than a hundred thousand Sahaba that gathered for the Hajjatul Wada to join Rasulullah on this momentous occasion. So, on the one hand, there was this gathering which the world would never see again and had never seen before, where the Rasul of Allah, the greatest of all the Anbiya, the greatest of all the Rasuls, he is present. And more than a hundred thousand of his companions are present. The likes of Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala who is present. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala who is present. Hazrat Usman, Hazrat Ali and all the other great Sahaba. They are all present. So this was something that was unique in so many ways. Being this kind of occasion where all these people were present. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi Whatever he did they paid very close attention to it. And they recorded every single aspect of this Mubarak journey. This too was a great favor on the Ummah by the Sahaba Ikram, that they recorded the minute details. For example, that Nabi Wasallam applied itar when he applied it. At the time just before Ihram he applied it. On which limbs of his body did he apply itar? To that extent, who provided the itar? Then, while on this journey, Nabi Salaam had some cupping done. So, where, which spot, which place was it where this cupping was done? Then, on which limb was this cupping done? And all these finer and minute details, which apparently are not directly related to Hajj itself, but whatever happened on that journey, all these minute details were also recorded. So, this was a great lesson for the Sahaba Ikram themselves, but their great favor on the Ummah that they recorded all these minute details and they passed it on. And the effort that they took to record every minute detail, to be observant of everything that Rasulullah did, this was itself a testimony of the extreme love that they had for Rasulullah Unfortunately, we find that in this time and age as well, there are those kind of people who have hatred for the Sahaba Ikram, who make all kinds of comments against them, who make baseless claims that after Rasulullah passed away, most of them, Na'uzubillah, became renegade, they left the fall of Islam. All these are totally baseless and totally evil things that are being said. We should be very, very conscious and very careful that we do not allow anybody to negatively influence us against the Sahaba. The rank of the Sahaba is something established from the Quran Sharif. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ آمِنُوا كَمَا آمَنَ النَّاسِ Allah Ta'ala refers to the Sahaba and the Iman of the Sahaba in this ayat. There's no time to discuss the ayat itself. But Allah Ta'ala refers to the Iman of the Sahaba that when the Munafiqeen are told you bring Iman like these people, like the Sahaba, they make some other excuse. But the Iman of the Sahaba was made the standard. So this is something that is very clear. Their rank and position is established from the Quran Sharif and how they lived with Rasulullah how they sacrificed their lives for him, how they recorded every minute detail of his Mubarak life. All these things are a testimony of their love for Rasulullah In any case, the Hadith Sharif that relates the Hajjatul Wada, there are several and many narrations that relate this in detail. There's a narration in Sahih Muslim which goes in great amount of detail about the Mubarak journey of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We will obviously not be able to deal with all the details, 
but some of the aspects which we will discuss and try and take some lessons therefrom. When Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi made the announcement, the Sahaba got ready, many had some means of conveyance, some horse, some camel. There were many who had no conveyance. They set out on foot. We are talking from Madina Munawwara to Makkah Mukarrama. And they had no conveyance, but that didn't deter them. They made that sacrifice and they set out on foot. What we learn from here is that if a person is determined to acquire something, then the challenges, no matter how apparently major they may be, but if the person is determined, the person will get to do it. And especially if the person is self-motivated on the basis of the rewards from Allah Taala, the person is motivated on the basis of that closeness that will come as a result of doing those good actions, then that is itself the greatest motivating factor that a person has the love of Allah Ta'ala and he has hope in the reward from Allah Ta'ala. This is what we have to inculcate. That to the extent that the love of Allah Ta'ala comes in our hearts, the love for Rasulullah is deep down in our hearts, then to that extent to undertake the a'mal of deen would become very easy. Like the Sahaba wanted to gain this great bounty and blessing of being with Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and being close to Allah Ta'ala as a result of this amal, they set out on foot from Madina Munawwara all the way to Makkah Mukarrama. Likewise, we want to be close to Allah Ta'ala, we want to be close to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on the day of Qiyamah, then to the extent that we exert ourselves, we apply ourselves, inshallah we will also achieve it. But we will have to make an effort and to the extent of the love within us, that effort will become easy as well. In any case, Rasulullah left from Madinah Munawwara. It was a Saturday, the 25th of Zulqadah. And that particular year, Zulqadah had 29 days. And thereafter, Rasulullah continued and reached Makkah Mukarramah on the 5th of Zulhijjah. So it was a nine-day journey. Nowadays, nine hours is also too long. In fact, people say they don't even didn't even take them three and a half, four hours. So, sometimes people get there so quickly. But can we imagine in that time, a nine-day journey to get to Makkah Mukarramah, but this journey was taken, undertaken for the sake of Allah Tabaraka wa Ta'ala. Rasulullah Wasallam, en route to Makkah Mukarramah, he stopped at Zul Hulayfa, which is nowadays known as Bir Ali. This is the place where he had put on his ihram. And therefore, this is sunnah, that a person is coming from the direction of Madinah Munawwara, the person stops at Zul Hulayfa and puts on the ihram at Zul Hulayfa. The greatest reward is doing something in the manner that Rasulullah did it. Now, apparently, a person, for example, is in Madinah Munawwara, and the person is now going to be leaving from Madinah Munawwara, coming to Makkah Mukarramah for Umrah, for Hajj. So somebody might think that Madina Munawwara, the sawab and the reward of performing salah in the Haram Sharif and the blessed city of Madina Munawwara. So I will put on my ihram in Madina Sharif. Indeed, Madina Sharif's blessings we cannot imagine. But the greatest blessing in doing is in doing something in the way that Rasulullah did it. Where he did it, what he did in following that accordingly, that is where the greatest blessing lies. So as great as it would be to perform two rakats in the masjid of Rasulullah 
greater than that is to perform the two rakats where Nabi Salaam performed it. And to put on the ihram where Nabi Salaam put on, put on his ihram. The lesson we get in this is the ittiba and the following of Rasulullah in all aspects of life. And this is what our, where lies our success of dunya and akhirat. In any case, here Nabi Salaam was instructed by Jibreel to make the niyat of Umrah and Hajj. And as a result, he made the niyat for both. And this is the aspect that the Hanafi Mazhab, they, their view is that this is the best Hajj, the Hajj of Qiran. Where in one ihram, both the Umrah and the Hajj is performed. After the Umrah, the person still remains in ihram, because the ihram was tied simultaneously for both. And after Hajj, the person then comes out of ihram. One aspect that happened at Zul Hulayfa was that Asma bint Umais radiallahu ta'ala anha, the wife of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala an, her son Abdullah bin Abi Bakr was born. So he was born at Zul Hulayfa. She immediately after the child was born, she came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa to inquire that now that this child has just been born, so she is in this state, what does she do now? How does she go about entering ihram, etc. So Rasulullah gave her certain instructions and the crux of it was that in this particular situation too, she would enter into the state of ihram. Yes, there are certain amal that would not be possible while in the state of uncleanliness, but he gave her the direction and the whatever she is supposed to be doing. The lesson here, that there are many masail of deen which are extremely important that we know what should be done, how it should be done. These are extremely important things that need to be correctly understood. And in order to correctly understand it, if we are not 100% sure, we need to ask. If there is somebody who is able to tell us, some female, we will find out. Otherwise, we need to inquire from the ulama kiram so that we get the correct understanding of whatever is applicable to us, and we perform the amal correctly. Here, this was something which was necessary to ask, so shyness did not prevent her from asking what was necessary. Unfortunately, nowadays, in things where we are supposed to uphold the highest level of modesty and shame, there that modesty and shame all just suddenly disappears. And in the necessary aspects of deen, where we are supposed to be knowing what to do and ask what is necessary, there suddenly there is some barrier and a person does not want to inquire, does not want to take the advice, whereas obviously keeping the etiquettes in mind with extreme caution being upheld, the correct advice should be sought from those who are able to give the correct advice. Rasulullah at this occasion then recited, after performing the Turaqat Salah, he recited the Talbiyah and the Talbiyah with the niyat of Hajj or Umrah is actually what is what brings a person into the state of ihram. In the case of men, for example, the towels or sheets that are worn, that is the clothing of ihram. That is not ihram itself. That is part of the requirement of ihram that when a person is in the state of ihram, then it is not permissible for a male to wear any garments that are sewn, like we understand a kurta, etc. But that's the garments that are necessary in the state of ihram that a person wears unsewn garments, unsewn cloth. But the ihram itself is the niyat and the talbiyah. 
So many a person gets confused in this regard, that is something that nevertheless, when people are going for Hajj, for Umrah, that is explained to them, but this is the Ihram itself, the Talbiyah and the Niyat of Hajj. Nabi Wasallam then mounted his camel and then recited the Talbiyah. Regarding this camel, there are many places where this camel is mentioned with regards to the Hajjatul Wada. Some state Nabi Wasallam was mounted on his camel which was Adba. Some narrations mention Kharma and some narrations mention a third name. Another narration got some other detail. Now, outwardly these all seem contradictory. But the Muhaddisin from various different sources, they give the evidence what they are saying, and then they prove that actually the same animal had all these different titles or names. And therefore, there was no contradiction at all. Somebody, when narrating the incident, mentioned one particular name, and somebody mentioned a second name, and somebody a third name, but all with the same animal. Now, outwardly, again, this is something is by the way, but there are deep lessons in all this. A person who is not an expert in the knowledge of deen, and he just opens some Hadith Sharif Kitab on his own, and he starts deciding he's going to study things directly, he doesn't need the help of anybody. He doesn't need any teacher. What is going to be the end result? He's going to see one Hadith Sharif stating one aspect, another Hadith Sharif stating apparently something that contradicts it. And a third Hadith Sharif stating something which apparently contradicts the first two. Allah forbid the person and these things have happened. person says all this seems to be all quite confusing and contradictory. So he, na'udhu billah, loses confidence in the Hadith Sharif. And that is the start to his dini destruction. That he starts losing confidence in that which has been authentically narrated. All the way down to the Muhaddithin. And the Muhaddithin compiled it in their books. And it authentically reached the Ummah from there. So, this is the great danger in trying to do things on our own without the expertise and without the skill. person doesn't know how to drive and the person decides to now jump behind the steering. So, even though that person might sometimes, by chance, just get it right and drive a few kilometers, but nobody will still be happy about that. They say, you've got no license to drive still. And therefore, you, you're just chance driving and coming safely to the destination once doesn't mean you are now qualified to drive. So likewise, the knowledge of deen is very intricate and we need to achieve and acquire this knowledge via those who have acquired it from their teachers. Through the unbroken chain all the way to the sahaba Kiram and to Rasulullah So in any case, Rasulullah after having mounted the camel and he recited the talbiyah, Labbaik, Allahumma Labbaik, Labbaik, La Sharika Laka Labbaik, Innal Hamda Wal Ni'mata Laka Wal Mulk, La Sharika Laka. This is the talbiyah and this talbiyah is a complete expression of the tawheed and the oneness of Allah wa ta'ala. And a person's complete submission to Allah ta'ala. Labbaik meaning, Ya Allah, I'm present. And labbaik, la sharika lak. Ya Allah, there is no partner unto you. You are one, you are unique. And the rest of the talbiyah, lakal mulku walahul hamd, all sovereignty, all kingdom belongs to you alone. All praise is for you alone. In other words, our complete submission to Allah Ta'ala alone. So this is the main lesson that we get in this Talbiyah, that this is Hajj. Now a person is coming for Hajj, coming to Baytullah, 
at that time, he has to cleanse his heart of all the ghayrullah completely. And this is what he must now come back from hajjud. The oneness of Allah Ta'ala and the tawheed firmly ingrained in his heart. That now everything is Allah Ta'ala's, his gaze is towards Allah Ta'ala. And he totally submits himself to Allah Ta'ala in every aspect. And in everything he is only concerned about the obedience of Allah Ta'ala. And obviously in that will flow that from the command of Allah Ta'ala is to follow in the footsteps of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So in any case, Nabi Sallallahu recited this talbiya and then proceeded, he made dua on this occasion. The dua that he made is also very, very unique and something that gives a very great lesson to the ummah. This is hajj again. It is hajjatul wada. It is the, that ibadat regarding which Rasulullah Sallallahu performed once in his lifetime. And it's once in a lifetime also first upon a person who has the ability. Such a great ibadat that in the Hadith Sharif, Nabi Islam says that the person who performs a hajj in a correct manner, he doesn't commit any sin in that time, he doesn't do anything that is improper, then raja'aka yawmin waladathu ummu. He returns in a condition like he was the day he was born. The day his mother gave birth to him, how he was sinless. He comes back in a similar condition after hajj. In another hadith, Nabi Islam says that hajjul mabroor, its reward is only Jannat. Such a great ibadat. And on this occasion, at the time of putting on the ihram, Nabi Islam made dua. Allahumma j'alu hajjan la riya'a fihi wa la sum'a. Ya Allah, make this such a hajj in which there is no showing off of anything and there is no desire for any fame. There is no name and fame business involved. There is no showing off involved. Now this brings a very important lesson forward that a person going for Umrah, the person going for Hajj, the niyat and the intention must be very pure. Allah Ta'ala accepts that which is pure. And if the niyat is adulterated, that niyat is corrupted with something else, I'm going for Hajj also, I'm going for Umrah also, and side by side I'm going to be going for a shopping trip as well, and I'm going to be doing some other things as well, that, that niyat is now mixed up. This doesn't mean that a person will go won't buy anything. But the niyat is purely for the sake of Allah Ta'ala to perform hajj, to perform umrah. If that whatever something gets bought, it gets bought, it doesn't get bought also, there's not a problem. There's no issue. The person doesn't feel anything that I went there and I didn't buy this and that because that was not the object. And that was something, if it happened, happened. If it didn't happen, it doesn't matter at all. So this is a very, very important aspect that there must not be in any way any kind of other intention mixed up. That this will be a little bit of a holiday. Uh, people are going, or rather people nowadays are afraid to go to many other destinations in the world for a holiday. So now this will become like a little holiday. We'll have some, well, make Umrah also. It'll be like a holiday, but then that has, will deprive us of the benefits and the rewards of this great ibadat. So in any case, Rasulullah made this dua, Allahumma j'alu hajjan la riya'a fihi wa la sum'a. Allah make it such a hajj in which there is no riya'a and there is no ostentation. No seeking of name and fame. On this journey, there were several aspects that are important to take note. One of the aspects is that on this journey, Rasulullah took along the Azwaj mutahharat his noble wives. The wives of Rasulullah they journeyed with him, but they journeyed with him 
what is known as in a howdaj. A howdaj used to be a closed and a covered carriage that used to be mounted on the camel and the azwari mutahharat, each one on their own camel, would be seated inside this howdaj. It was completely covered with some kind of material or canvas from all sides and in this way they would travel. Now, they are the azwari mutahharat, they are the most pure women of this ummah, there was nobody and there will be nobody that will reach their state of purity. And despite all this, this was the extent to which the laws of hijab were upheld and the caution and care with which they traveled. If this applied to them, then to what extent it will apply to us? In the case of ihram, a woman would wear her normal garb, but one aspect that is applicable in ihram is that she will not bring any cloth or anything in such a way in front of her face that it touches the face. The niqab etc. is not permissible to wear in a haram in such a way that it touches the face. Now, therefore, the face would generally remain uncovered. Now, because of the state of haram, they would uncover their faces. As Aisha radiallahu ta'ala she explains this. Now, while they were traveling, so they would be traveling in their own space, and there was nobody around them immediately. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam with Azwaj But, now they are nevertheless traveling on a road. So the Aisha Radiallahu says that because we were in the state of Ihram, we would leave our faces uncovered. But when we would, we would see a rider approaching, so now from the distance, riding on a desert road, far away in the distance, it can be seen now, some rider is approaching. So she says now she is from among the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, the mothers of the Ummah. And she is among the azwaj mutahharat among the chaste and noble wives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And she says when we would see a rider approaching, we would cover our faces. And when he would have passed us and gone out of sight, then we would uncover our faces again. Now this was the extent of care and caution and to the extent with which the laws of hijab were maintained even in the state of ihram. So how much more careful we have to be and to what extent we need to take this lesson. One aspect, also one, one incident that took place, which is also an incident of great lesson for us, that on this journey, the camel of Hazrat Safiya radiallahu ta'ala which was among the best camels that were owned at that time or among those who had been journeying at that time, Something or the other happened and that camel was unable to walk. It just became ill or something happened. And as a result, Hazrat Safiya radiallahu ta'ala got left without any mode of transport. So she began crying. It's a lengthy incident, but to just get to the main point, Nabi Salaam encamped that night there. The next day, uh, it was time to journey again. Nabi Islam said to Hazrat Zainab bin Tajahash radiallahu ta'ala anha, was also one of the wives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa that you have a spare camel as well, so why don't you lend your one camel to Hazrat Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. Now, both were the wives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and this was something which was part of the natural rivalry that existed among the co-wives, even in that time, in every era almost. So when this Suggestion was made to her that you have two camels, why don't you lend one to her, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. 
on the spur of the moment, something just came off her tongue, which she may not have really meant to say it in that way, but something just came off her tongue to say that, should I lend my camel to that Jewess, Hazrat Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, was from the progeny of Hazrat Harun alayhi salatu wasalam. And then coming down to the Bani Israel, so she belonged to the Bani Israel, so to say, from that progeny. On, in that reference, Hazrat Zainab anha made this comment, that should I lend my camel, my spare camel to that Jewess, Nabi Islam became very upset at this remark. Because this was now making a comment against a person. And Nabi Islam would practically emphasize the important lessons. And this was a very important lesson to emphasize. Nabi Islam became upset at this remark that this was now violating somebody, it was trampling on somebody's dignity. And as a result, he stopped speaking to Hazrat. Zainab radiallahu he stopped spending time with her and throughout the rest of the Hajj journey and until the return, it was almost two months later that Rasulullah then came back and he normalized the relationship. But for two months and little more, he emphasized practically this situation that this was something that was very, very wrong. It was not acceptable in any way. And therefore, this is something to repent from. And immediately, Hazrat Zainab had realized her mistake. But Nabi Wasallam still maintained the silence in order to emphasize this lesson for the entire Ummah. That the comments that sometimes are made, people are degraded sometimes in some way, or some humiliating remarks are made, which hurt people. This is something very serious, very wrong. We should never ever make any kind of negative comments based on a person's color or language or nationality or anything for that matter. These things are totally secondary things. The primary thing is Iman. Every person who has Iman is a fellow Muslim brother or sister and every person has to be respected. On the day of Qiyamah it will be known who is truly more honorable. That person who has been closer to Allah Ta'ala, no matter who it might be, might be a Mr. Nobody, nobody took any notice of that person also, but that person had the closest taluk with Allah Ta'ala, that person would be far ahead of everybody on the day of Qiyabad. In any case, this lesson is an important lesson that we should be very, very conscious about, that we don't ever make such kind of utterances and cause any kind of taklif to anybody. Another aspect that is worth taking great note of is that on this occasion, when Nabi Islam was traveling with the Azwadi Mutahharat, they were on their camels. One person who was a slave of Rasulullah Sallallahu he was a slave, Anjasha. He was responsible to be, so to say, driving the camels along. So, whether he was behind or in front or something, but in any case, one of the things that used to happen in that time, when people would be journeying on camel back, lengthy journeys, so at times, they would start reciting some poetry in a melodious voice, which used to be known as Hudi. And the effect of this, it used to be recited some kind of specific poetry or whatever it was, in a very melodious voice in a particular manner. And the effect of that would be that these camels would go in a kind of trance. 
And as a result, they would start walking at a very fast pace. And they would not feel the exertion. So this was a common thing. Even nowadays, sometimes it might have been, somebody might have noticed something like this ever, sometimes happen when there's some very uh, difficult task and a whole team of laborers are doing something. You find them all chanting together something and doing that. That takes the mind off that exertion. And that heavy work starts feeling a bit lighter. So similar situation, this hudi used to be recited in a very melodious manner. And the effect on the camels would be that they would start walking at a very much faster pace. So the Anjasha, he began reciting this hudi in order to quicken the pace of the animals, of the camels. When he started reciting this hudi, the effect came upon the camels and they started walking much faster. So Rasulullah addressed Anjasha and said, Ruaydaka sawqaka bil qawareer. He said, oh Anjasha, ruaydak, ruaydaka sawqaka bil qawareer, that be careful about how you drive the glass bottles. Now, what was this being referred to? Be careful about how you drive the glass bottles. The people that were mounted on the camels with the azwaj mutahharat, the wives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa The women who were seated on those camels in those hodaj, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam likened them and in general now likened women to glass bottles, to glass. Now, there are two aspects that were men- meant in this. The Muhaddisin explained two aspects which are the reference to this. One is that Physically also, women are generally a little more weaker. By this quick pace, if somebody gets unseated, they will fall or they could just get bumped against something in that haudaj and they could get hurt easily. So therefore, don't quicken the pace of these camels so much, otherwise you might cause some hurt to somebody. Now this is one meaning of this statement of Rasulullah But many muhaddisin of the view that while this too is part of the, of what was meant, what in reality was meant is something apart from that. That, what Rasulullah was actually saying is, that, O Anjasha, there are glass bottles, meaning the women that are seated here, are like, being likened to glass bottles, and glass bottles are fragile. Fragile in the sense that, with the least amount of, some, getting bumped somewhere, something, it can crack, it can break, Meaning it doesn't take any great effort to cause a break, to cause a crack of any sort. So what is being explained here is that in this melodious voice that you are reciting, this can easily influence and affect somebody's heart. So be careful about how you are reciting this. You start rather hold on with this. Because you might influence somebody's heart just now. This is the meaning that the Muhaddisin have clearly explained. Rasulullah is present. Azwaj Mutaharat are the most pure and noble women that the that have ever set foot on this earth from the from this ummah. And this is the instruction that Rasulullah is giving. This is similar to the instruction that the Quran Sharif gave to the Sahaba Kiram that if you ask the Azwaj Mutaharat of for some necessity, do so from behind a veil. Why? That behind a curtain, not directly. 
out of some genuine necessity you have to ask something, do it from behind the curtain that is purer for your heart and their hearts. There was no doubt about their purity. But they were used as the example for the Ummah till Qiyamah. That if they are being addressed in this way, then how much more this applies to everybody that will come after them. The same applied here. That Nabi Salaam was giving the lesson for the Ummah. That if this melodious voice of a male is being curtailed, that the woman should not be exposed to this. Because it can influence them. If this kind of instruction is being given in the time of Rasulullah then to what extent this will apply later in time? That now somebody is listening to some nasheed of some young male and in a melodious voice is reading it and can this not influence the heart? Yes, it can. And it might sound like this is just, by the way, these are realities. Women thereafter, some of them even write up and they inquire now, how do I control my heart now? Because my heart has already gone out in that direction of that person. These are realities. Unfortunately, this is something that happens and because of the lack of care and caution, these great problems then occur and it happens to people who are sometimes even married. We need to be extremely cautious, extremely careful in this regard. Many a times, a lot of things are taken very casually. What's wrong with this and what's the problem with this and why, what's all the why and what. But when the problems do take place and when the damage is done, then nobody is there to see what really... The, where the root of the damage was. They only see the end results. But often the root of that damage and that problem and that harm that came, came from these kind of situations, which Rasulullah already cautioned us about, and already gave the Ummah direction about. But we still want to question it, we still want to say, but what and why and how. We need to submit ourselves entirely, and do what is necessary in the way that Rasulullah has asked us to conduct ourselves. To continue with the journey of Hajj thereafter, Rasulullah came to Makkah Mukarramah and he performed the tawaf. After having performed the tawaf, he came to the Maqam Ibrahim and he performed the two rakats of the Maqam Ibrahim. Then he went to Safa and Marwa and performed the Sa'i. And in that Sa'i, in that valley, what we know as the two green lights nowadays, the Milain Akhdarain. Nabi Islam ran at that point. What was this? This was all a remembrance of the running of Sayyidah Hajar anha. This is the honor that Islam has given to the sacrifice of a woman. That she, the incident is well known to us, Ismail was thirsty, was hungry and he was crying and she was now very, very concerned that where will something be found? Is there anybody coming in this direction? She ran from Safa to Marwa and Marwa to Safa. And when she was coming to this valley, she quickened her pace in order to get past this so that somebody, if somebody is coming, she may see the person and ask for help. Allah Ta'ala kept this alive. Nabi Islam himself went through this and made this the sunnah for the sahaba Kiram, all to keep the sacrifice of Hazrat Hajar alive. This is the respect and the honor Islam has afforded to women that their sacrifices have been remembered. But we should not be carried away by the false slogans of the West and their, their concept of what is respect and honor. The Western concept of respect and honor is a very, very immoral concept. 
it is very respectable. This is something which might sound a little maybe crude, but it's something for our for our understanding to know how it how the West works. That in the Western circle is very respectable. That if somebody has come to visit or some couple has come along, that this person now the person of the house, so he will welcome this couple that has entered. His wife will welcome them also. The man that has entered with his wife will kiss this person's wife and that's part of etiquette and that is very respectable. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Can we imagine how filthy this culture is? And we want to take the direction of what they do. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Our direction comes from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa comes from the Quran Sharif. So their concept of what is freedom, their concept of what is respect, their concept of what is the honor of women, their concept of all these things is totally corrupted. They have no idea of what is respect. They have no idea of what is honor and dignity. Islam has given honor and dignity to women. Islam has kept Jannah under the feet of the mother. Islam has given this direction to the husbands. Where Rasulullah has said that خيارukum خيارukum That the best among you is the one who is best to his wife. And I am the best of all to my wife. These are the things Islam has taught. What does the West know? The West knows that everything is all, there's no morals, there's no modesty, there's no shame, there's no etiquette, there's no respect, and everybody lives their own life in their own way. So in any case, the lesson here is, we should not get influenced and think that we too should start judging things according to the yardstick of the West. Then we also fall in the same place that they have fallen, and the same problems and difficulties that their societies are facing at every day, we will face the same problems Allah Ta'ala protect us and save us. On this occasion, one of the things that happened was, Rasulullah had come to Makkah Mukarramah, but he had sent Hazrat Ali radiallahu first to Yemen on some work. And from Yemen, Hazrat Ali radiallahu brought along the camels of Rasulullah for sacrifice, so when he came, Hazrat Fatima had already come with Nabi Salaam to Makkah Mukarramah. Ali came and he sees Hazrat Fatima has already, now she had performed her Umrah and she had come out of Ihram because this was the Umrah, this was the instruction of Rasulullah to the Sahaba that they should make the niyat of Umrah only and then afterwards they should make the niyat of Hajj. For various reasons this was the instruction he gave them. So Fatima had now been out of the state of Ihram and she knew Ali would be coming. So she had adorned herself, etc. So Ali came and he saw this and thinking that she is still in the state of Ihram and she has now undertaken this adornment, he became very upset and he began rebuking her. She said to him that this is what the instruction my father gave me, Rasulullah gave. So Ali came to Nabi and inquired that I came and I found this, the situation, Fatima had adopted this kind of attire, etc. And she had adorned herself, meaning she was not in a state of ihram. She had undertaken, meaning she had put on surma, etc. So he was upset about this. So Nabi Islam said, yes, what she said is correct. I had instructed her to do this, meaning that to come out of the state of ihram. And now when we will proceed for hajj, then she will enter into ihram again for hajj. This is one incident that happened on this occasion related to the Hajj. But the lesson that we get in here, the lesson is from time to time, there are some issues that come up between spouses 
and especially nowadays, even dini issues. Many a times we get these kind of questions coming, that my wife is saying this, and I am trying to explain to her this, but she is now insisting that I must bring the proof from the Quran, I must bring the proof from the Hadith. Now the husband also is not qualified in dini knowledge, and that wife is also not qualified in dini knowledge. And both are insisting, or one is insisting upon the other, that you go and bring the proof for me from the Quran Sharif. Go bring the proof from me from the Hadith Sharif. Indeed, the proof is only from the Quran and Sunnah. There is no proof from anywhere else. But, is a person qualified to be able to extract the proof? Like a person has got a very major case. And now the person says, no, I will fight this case on myself. I got all the law books here. Nowadays, you just Google it, you'll get all the law books. So Fordham is going to waste so much of money going to a lawyer, and that lawyer will go find one junior counsel, and then he'll go find one senior counsel, and the senior counsel's fees will be 20,000 rands an hour, or for a day, and for the 20,000 rands a day, I will just do this myself. Does anybody take a chance with that? So the Quran Sharif is far beyond all these legal books, in terms of extracting ahkam. One is the advice the Quran Sharif gives, in terms of the encouragement in terms of explaining what will happen in the akhirat, in terms of all the other various basic aspects, that is straightforward. But in terms of extracting rulings of deen, that requires the expertise of the fuqaha. So what should be actually the case, if there is some question that has come up, some issue between spouses, whatever it is, okay, let us inquire about this, let us find out. I think I understood this from somebody like this, you understood it something else, Neither should I be taking a chance on this, nor should you be taking a chance on this. Both of us should refer this to an alim, to a experience, an experienced alim, inquire from him, and we take the direction and move on. This should be the procedure, and this should be the way that we resolve the issues, not that we start arguing over things, and each one trying to find some proof on their own accord. It is something to be referred, and to take the direction from the learned, and move on in that manner. In any case, Rasulullah Wasallam then proceeded from Makkah Mukarramah to Mina, and he spent that first night on the 8th of Zulhijjah, Nabi Wasallam spent the night at Mina, he was there from Zuhr, uh, performed his Zuhr Salah at Mina, and the rest of that day, Salah, Zuhr, Asar, Maghrib, Isha, and the next day, he performed Fajr early in the morning, and then set out for Arafat. In the times of Jahiliyyah, the Quraysh, they would encamp at Muzdalifa. While everybody went away to Arafat, now Muzdalifa falls en route. The Quraysh would not go to Arafat. It was actually just an excuse on one hand, but mainly the Quraysh were trying to be a distinguished nation, a people. So they would say that, well, Arafat is for all the lower class people, so to say. We are the elite. We don't go to Arafat. We will remain here. So they used to remain there, but the, the outward reason they would give is that Muzdalifa falls within the boundaries of the Haram. So we can't cross this line. Everybody else must go to Arafat. Now this was in the times of Jahiliya. Now Islam came. They expected that Rasulullah will do the same. That Nabi would stay at Muzdalifa. He would not go to Arafat. Because this was the Hajj that came down from the time of Ibrahim Salatu Salam. Nabi Salaam proceeded all the way to Arafat. 
and he broke this custom of jahiliyyah. That this was a jahili aspect. One aspect here is, listen, person shouldn't be looking for some kind of distinction for himself, to distinguish himself from others, and be a class above the rest. No, he should be among everybody, obviously within the limits of deen. Within the limits and boundaries of shariat, he should be one of the people. Don't try to make a special place for himself. The second thing is, if something is a custom that is not in accordance with the commands of Allah Ta'ala, in accordance with the way of Rasulullah it's a custom of jahiliyyah in a sense. It might not have been a custom that came down from that jahiliyyah, but it is a custom of our own jahiliyyah. There's something we just picked up by the way, was picked up by our forefathers, maybe from India somewhere, or wherever it might have been. Now there's a wedding, there's some other occasion, and there are some customs that become so ingrained in it, such an integral part of those things, that if somebody doesn't do it, they become the target of criticism. Somebody doesn't have some mendy party at the time of their wedding, then that becomes a very big problem, and they will hear a whole lot of stories about it. What it means is that we are still sticking to jahiliyyah. So the customs of jahiliyyah need to be abandoned. And Nabi Islam expressed that in this incident, that he moved on to Arafat, and he did not stay only at Muzdalifah, as the Quraysh would do. Then, in Arafat, Nabi Islam addressed the Sahaba in the very famous khutbah, which is known as the khutbah of Hajjatul Wada, the khutbah that was delivered in Arafat, and there were many, many lessons that Rasulullah Islam gave on this occasion. In this, one of the aspects he mentioned as well, that, إِنَّ دِمَاءَكُمْ وَأَمْوَالَكُمْ حَرَامٌ عَلَيْكُمْ كَحُرْمَةِ يَوْمِكُمْ هَذَا فِي شَهْرِكُمْ هَذَا فِي بَلَدِكُمْ هَذَا Nabi Islam addressed the Sahaba Ikram, and he said to them, this is many things before that he said, and then came to this point, that verily your life, your wealth, and your dignity, every person's life, every person's property, and every person's honor and dignity, is sacred. Sacred meaning something that you won't do anything against the respect and honor of it. Like the Kaaba Sharif is sacred, the Quran Sharif is sacred, the month of Ramadan is sacred. So likewise, Nabi Islam is saying, every believer, every believer's life, property, and honor and dignity, is as sacred as the sanctity of this day, in this month, in this place. Meaning the day of Arafat, and in the month of Zulhijjah, and in this Mubarak place, all these things put together are so sanctified, are such great, on such a great level of respect and honor. But the sanctity of every Muslim is greater than this as well. Can we imagine what it is to violate the honor of a mu'min? To make ghibat of a mu'min is to go against this honor, to trample this honor. To make hurtful comments and, and uh, criticize somebody unduly, make some kind of hurtful comments because of a person's physical situation, somebody's color, somebody's language, somebody's nationality, somebody's whatever... These are all things which go against the dignity and the honor of a mu'min. And these are things that Rasulullah is saying, that it is like doing something against the command of Allah Ta'ala in Arafat. It's like committing a major sin in the Mubarak place of the Haram Sharif. This is worse than that. So, this is a lesson that he gave to the Sahaba on that occasion. And in, the, in this khutbah also, he said, I've abolished waribal jahiliyati mawdu'un. All the riba and the interest that was owing to people because of loans taken in the time of Jahiliyyah, all this is now abolished. 
Again, we just learned the message that things to do with Jahiliya were abolished. Here again, this interest which people had given loans and they were being owed the interest, Nabi Islam said, all that is abolished, no more interest. And Hazrat Abbas Nabi Islam said, I have cancelled even the capital amount that was owed to him. The interest that is owed to him, the capital amount that is owed to him, that is also all wiped out. Here we see Nabi Islam made his own family the example to establish this law of deen. That everybody else, they won't get the interest because that's haram. But the capital amount, they'll get that back. But because this interest was now the objective of giving this loan, the loan that Abbas gave before Islam came in, that even the capital is wiped out. Nabi Islam could speak on his behalf. He was the Nabi of the time, that was his uncle. In any case, this is the lesson we learn here, that we should be making an effort on our families. <coughs> in this khutbah, one of the things Nabi Islam mentioned to the Sahaba, that Nabi Islam cautioned them about how they take care of their wives and the rights of their wives. Among this, one of the things he said to them, وَلَكُمْ عَلَيْهِنَّ أَلَّا يُوْتِينَ فُرُشَكُمْ أَحَدًا تَكْرَهُونَهُ وَلَهُنَّ عَلَيْكُمْ رِسْقُهُنَّ وَكِسْبَتُهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ That you have a right upon them, they have a right upon you. Your right upon them, Nabi Islam is mentioning in Hajjatul Wada in the khutbah. Your right upon them is, they, they should not allow any such person to enter your home who you disapprove of. Meaning any non-mahram. That in their absence, any non-mahram comes into the home. Now this was something that used to happen in Jahiliyat. That any stranger would come, it might be the neighbor, it might be somebody else, and the husband is not even present, and he would come and he would enter the home and he would sit and have a casual discussion and conversation with that lady of the house. Nabi Islam said, this is totally outlawed. They cannot allow any such person to enter the home in your absence. So, the lesson we learn from here, the segregation. The segregation of genders. Males and females, there will be complete segregation. Non-mahrams will not intermingle in any way. It can be a family function, it can be anything, but non-mahrams, they will not intermingle. Yes, a person who is a mahram, there are specific limits within which the interaction may happen with the mahram, but apart from the mahrams, no intermingling. And then Nabi Islam said to the men, that upon you is a right for them, that you will take care of their shelter and their clothing and food, etc. That is your responsibility. So Nabi Islam placed the responsibility of earning for the household upon the husband. This is his responsibility to go out and earn for the household and, the, and his wife would be responsible to take care of the household itself. This is the way Nabi Islam apportioned the duties when Hazrat Fatima got married. He said to Hazrat Ali all the things that pertain to outside the house, this is your responsibility. And everything that pertains to inside the house, whatever preparing of the meals, taking care of the children, cleaning and so on, this is the responsibility of Hazrat Fatima In this way, Nabi Islam apportioned the duties and in this way, this home, the foundation for a healthy household was laid. That when each one is fulfilling their role, then there will be peace and happiness. But if everybody wants to be the husband, then obviously there's going to be chaos. There's not going to be that peace and serenity in their home. Because now if everybody is going to be the husband, everybody will have to be the wife also. And then, well today I did that, so today you must do this. 
And now everybody is pulling in their own direction and the woman often gets left with a double job. She then ends up working outside also and ends up working inside also and she's forever now miserable about it because she's burdened with a double task. Whereas this is all the reason uh, or the, the, the result of not following the guidance that Rasulullah gave and how he apportioned the duties to Hazrat Ali and Hazrat Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha. Then in Arafat, Rasulullah made a lot of dua, apart from all the ibadat, a lot of dua. And he made dua and dua. On this occasion, all the duas were accepted, but the one dua was not accepted. And that was the dua which Nabi made for the forgiveness of the zalim of this ummat. That the person who has committed oppression, Allah Ta'ala did not accept that dua that that person will be forgiven. When Nabi then came to Muzdalifa, after Arafat, he proceeded to Muzdalifa. Again he made dua. And there the dua for the zalim of the ummah was also accepted. Now there's two parts to this and something very important to understand. That in Arafat, such a great occasion and this dua was not accepted. But then in Muzdalifa, it was finally accepted. But what we learn from here is that what is severe thing zulm is and oppression is. That the dua for the zalim of the ummah was not accepted even in Arafat. But nevertheless, because of the dua of Nabi Sallallahu being continuous in this regard, it finally came in, Ar- in Muzdalifa got accepted. But what does this mean? That a person committed some oppression. For example, he took away somebody's wealth. Or he swore at somebody. Made ghibat of someone. And now, maybe if it was in the state, in the condition regarding wealth, for example, person is down and out now. He doesn't even have anything to pay it back. And in that manner, he finally passed away. He never had the ability or the opportunity to sort the problem out. Then inshallah, this person now will be forgiven on the day of Qiyamah and Allah Ta'ala will compensate the oppressed person from his side. But not that the person committed zulm and says, no, don't worry, I'm forgiven. The person who committed zulm, there's two things involved. One is he trampled the law of Allah Ta'ala the second is he violated the rights of the fellow Muslim. The law of Allah Ta'ala he violated, inshallah that will get forgiven if he makes toba. But the rights of the person he violated, he will have to make do that. Unless he repented but there was no opportunity to do it, that person passed away. Now he made a rebirth of that person, that person came to know also, and that person passed away now. He saw that person, he broke that person's heart. That person is gone, how is he going to even ask him for any forgiveness? So now he makes sincere toba. He makes some isale sawab for him. He makes dua for him, etc. Allah Ta'ala will forgive it, inshallah. But it doesn't mean that this is a license now for anybody to commit any oppression. Rather, it shows us how severe oppression is and how serious it is that even in Arafat, this is something which was not accepted, but it got accepted nevertheless in Muzdalifa. Just to finish off on this, when Nabi Wasallam made dua in Arafat and that morning... Uh, the, later that day, Nabi Sallallahu was seen smiling. And Nabi Sallallahu was asked that you are smiling. He said when Iblis saw the number of people that were forgiven, after I made dua for the forgiveness of my ummah, Iblis became very, very miserable on this and he began cursing himself and throwing dust and sand upon himself. The lesson that we learn here is that Nabi Sallallahu did that which displeased Iblis. Pleased Allah Ta'ala and displeased Iblis. 
This is a lesson we have to take. We have to keep doing that which will please Allah Ta'ala. And we have to do that which will displease and which will cause the greatest pain to shaitan and iblis. We should not become the friends of shaitan, following in his footsteps and doing what makes him happy. Otherwise this will cause us great harm in dunya also and cause us great harm in akhirat. Nevertheless, Nabi Wasallam then completed the rites of hajj in Muzdalifa and came back to Mina after the pelting of the Jamarat. He then slotted a hundred camels. Out of these hundred camels, 63 camels he slotted with his own Mubarak hand and the rest of it was done by the hand of Hazrat Ali radiallahu ta'ala an. He did this on behalf of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa But this was the amount of qurbani that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa made. Thereafter Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa instructed that a piece of the meat and flesh of all the animals, one one piece, small piece be gathered together, all this be put into one pot and all that be cooked. And then he partook from that pot. Meaning whatever little he partook, but this was so to say a way of partaking a bit of every one of those hundred camels. So obviously he would have partaken a morsel from some pieces from there, but because it was all cooked together, it so to say became one. But this was showing us the importance of what a great ibadat this qurbani is, and how blessed and mubarak that meat of that qurbani animal is. That Nabi Sallallahu wished to partake of every animal, but obviously that's not possible, but this was a way in which to try and do it, so to say. So this qurbani that we perform, it's something which is a very great ibadat. We should try and perform at least one, our wajib qurbani, in our own homes, in our yards, that our children witness this, we try to make the arrangements for it, and then we try and partake of that meat of that animal as well, nafil qurbani, wherever we want to make more, inshallah, no problem, that is great reward as well, but the wajib qurbanis, inshallah, we should try and do it with our own hands, in our own yards, and bring this ibadat, the spirit of this ibadat alive. After having completed the rites of hajj, Nabi Sallallahu completed the tawaf ziyara, etc., and then finally returned to Madina Munawwara. This was a very brief discussion of the Hajjatul Wada, the Hajj of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and some of the lessons that come in this great occasion, from this great occasion. Allah Ta'ala give us the tawfiq that we bring into our lives the complete obedience of Allah Ta'ala, the way of life of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that we do that which Allah and His Nabi Sallallahu are pleased with, and we shun all the things that will earn the displeasure of Allah Ta'ala. وآخر دعوانا عن الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم لك الحمد كله ولك الشكر كله اللهم لا نحصي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك جزا الله عنا نبينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وسلم بما هو أهله ربنا ظلمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين رب اغفر وارحم واعفو وتكرم وتجاوز عما تعلم إنك أنت العز الأكرم اللهم افتح لنا بالخير واختم لنا بالخير واجعل عواقب أمورنا بالخير بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم إنا نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير خلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه اجمعين والحمد لله رب العالمين